As we come to God's Word this morning, we are wrapping up these last three weeks that we've spent in Ephesians chapter 4, and I was um, greatly helped, you know, sometimes in preparing to speak to you, I, I get to send my notes to someone else and just say, hey, what do you think? Can you give me some feedback? And I did that uh, this week to, with Ryan, and uh, some of Ryan's feedback um, was, well, Nate, I think you're getting to the main point at the end. Can you bring that up front? Can you tell people up front why this portion of God's Word matters so much and why it matters for us today? And so I'm going to try to do that now. Um, the, the reason, as we kind of put a bow on Ephesians chapter 4, the, the reason why I think this chapter in our text today is so important is because what it does is it highlights that God is doing something huge through his church. That he is doing something huge from through his church, and the main event that he is doing through his church is surprising. It's surprising. It's so surprising that I think across our city today, there are thousands of people, literally thousands of people, gathering in gatherings like this, and they are missing the main event. They are missing the main event because they think that the main event is happening up here. They think the main event of the church gathering might be the musicians, might even be the preacher. And I think by the end of our time this morning, what we're going to see is the main event is not happening up here. Everything that is happening up here is in order that the main event might happen out there, might happen in all of you as you come together as one body under Christ and for his namesake. And so we're going to get, um, we're, we're going to get into that this morning. Paul gets very practical in our text as he rounds out the fourth chapter of Ephesians. And so I just want to whet your appetite for that. Get ready to be a part of the main event. There are no bystanders. There are no spectators in God's church because you are all part of the main event which God is putting on through the body of Christ. Okay? So just be ready to encounter that. Our main text this morning is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. It's the second half of the chapter. It's a longer section, so we're going to split it up into two readings. Uh, Sam is going to come first, and he's going to read the first half, uh, which goes through verse 24. And the Apostle Paul is going to tell us why Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, why a life um, of sin is just incompatible with being members of God's church. That's where he's going to start. And so see if you can hear the reasoning that he gives. Um, And then Austin is going to come and read the second half, which will pick up in verse 25, go through 32. So there's no, there's no division there as, as one guy leaves and another guy comes. Just imagine the text is just rolling on, right? Um, he's going to come and read that second half, which describes the, the main event, so to speak, of the church. Uh, the main event when we gather, the main event, um, that God is doing in his church. Um, from there, um, Sharon is going to come and read Jesus' words from Matthew 15. Now, 
Matthew 15, we're going to hear Jesus describe the source of our problem, the source of humanity's problem, the source of why we struggle with sin, even as members of the church. Why do we struggle with sin? And then lastly, Jen is going to come and finish out our readings by reading Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. And this is just a beautiful picture of God's grace and how it impacts us day by day, how it actually changes and addresses the source problem that Jesus is identifying for us in Matthew 15, and how we live out a life of righteousness and holiness in him. So um, those are the texts you're going to hear. And Sam, would you come and get us started in Ephesians chapter 4? Ephesians four seventeen through 24. <clears throat> so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work uh, with his own hands, so that he may, he may have something to share with, one another, one, with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Matthew 15. 10 through 11, and then 17 through 20. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness 
and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. All right, well, if you have a Bible with you and it's not open, would you please open it to Ephesians chapter 4? If you're, again, if you're new to the Bible, Ephesians is in the New Testament. That's about the last quarter of the Bible. And if you get to the New Testament, Ephesians is maybe halfway through that. Ephesians is a letter uh, that Paul wrote to a church in the Greek city of Ephesus. And we've been studying chapter 4 for the last three weeks. Now, uh, the, the poet Maya Angelou famously said that you can't really know where you're going until you know where you've been. Um, she was talking about civil rights, which is a wonderful topic, and there should be more sermons on that topic. Uh, that is not this sermon, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but it is her quote is very true to how we see this chapter of Scripture, um, how, how Ephesians 4 functions. In order to understand and know where we're going, where, where verses 17 and following are taking us, we have to know where we've been. And so let's, before we go into verse 17, let's remember where we've been these last two weeks. So two weeks ago, we looked at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4, and particularly those first three verses. So look at those three verses with me now. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so we saw two weeks ago how unity among God's people, the church, begins with God's supernatural call. You remember that? We are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been Called, And one of the ways we do that then down in verse 3 is by being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And so the call of God, we said, was this supernatural divine intervention of God into our lives that opens up our eyes and our hearts to see Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ as compelling, as, as real. It's not a, a fairy tale anymore. It's not just something these kind of weird Christians talk about on Sundays. No, this is true for me. God is offering me forgiveness through Jesus at the cross. I'm seeing that now. That's because God has called to my heart. So that's what happens when God calls us. You may remember what we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul says that the gospel is a stumbling block to Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so if you see power in Jesus Christ, if you see wisdom in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is because you have heard this supernatural call of God that has divinely intervened into your life. Or we saw it in Romans chapter 8 that for those whom God foreknew, He also predestined, and those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And so that calling is just an, an indispensable link in the chain of how 
anyone gets to glory. And so, um, so we, we saw there in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, that God's call is primarily what puts us together into one body, the church of God. Okay, do you remember that from two weeks ago? I know it's hard to remember what happened two weeks ago, and so that's why I want to remind us as we, as we get started. And then last week, so one week ago, maybe our memory is a little bit better, one week ago, uh, Ryan showed how verses 7 through 16 of chapter 4, so that kind of chunk there in the middle, describe what this one body is like, what, what they do, what, what all Christians are, are to do being part of this one body. Namely, that this body builds itself up and grows until, as verse 13 says, look down at verse 13, it says, until we all attain the unity, there it is again, unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And so our unity of a body, as a body, is a direct reflection of how well we know Jesus together. Do you see that? We, we build one another up toward the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. So the more we know Jesus together, the more we can expect to be unified together in this one body, because it's His body, right? Now, now, we might think, well, why is that? Why is church unity a direct overflow of knowing Jesus together? How, Paul, you could have named a dozen different things. Why, why is unity so close to knowing Jesus? And the answer comes in verses 14 through 15. So again, we covered this last week, but verses 14 and 15 are really important to where Paul's going starting in verse 17, okay? So let's take a look again at verses 14 and 15. Why does the church build itself up? And why, why is unity right there in the middle? Verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, so there's contrast going on here, right? Rather, here's the opposite. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So we hear the contrast, right? We are no longer to be tossed to and fro by what Paul calls doctrines or people or schemes, and rather, instead of that, rather, we are to grow up by speaking the truth in love to one another. So what's that mean? Here's what I think that means. The culture... Whether, you know, mainstream media, whether public opinion is constantly saying to you, you need to know X. You need to do something about Y. You are missing out on Z. And so we are so easily preoccupied with social problems and cultural problems and family problems and work problems, health problems, or just fill-in-the-blank problems. All of these issues that are being pushed to the forefront of our minds, and they're all saying, this is the thing that needs your attention. This is the thing you need to think about most. This is the thing you need to fix. 
And, and some of those are real issues, right? We, we can't just ignore them. But what's, so what's going to get the church through all that? What, what, what's going to keep us as we all hear those, those messages and, and those distractions? What's going to keep, you know, this side of the room from being blown this way on the, these issues and this side of the room blown this way on these issues and these problems? What's going to keep us together? What's going to keep us rallied around the most important thing? What's going to keep us focused on building the kingdom, on, on seeing the body grow and mature as the gospel goes forward? What's going to do that? Look at verse 15. Rather, here's what's going to keep us from doing that. This is really simple. In fact, it's so simple that, that we easily miss it. Rather, rather than being tossed to and fro, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow. Do you see that? Distractions, all these important things, even deceptions and half-truths, they are all lies that every day are moving to blow us this way and that way. What is going to keep us grounded What is going to keep us unified? What's going to keep us around the main thing? You are. You are. Look around the room. Look at one another. These are the people that are going to keep you grounded, that are going to keep us grounded if we speak, as as Ryan put it, I I thought this was so great how you put this, brother, if we speak God's truth, in God's love to one another. It's going to keep you grounded. We are to build one another up by being reminders to one another. Remember, Jesus is king. Remember, Jesus cares about you more than you could ever know. Remember, Jesus paid for every one of your sins. Remember, Jesus will work all things together for your good. Remember, you will not regret following Jesus, obeying Jesus, loving Jesus, and finding your refuge in Him. That's how we stay together. That's how we stay grounded. That's how we stay together instead of being tossed this way that way until we're all just scattered. That's not my idea. That's what the text says. Do you see that? That's what God says. That's his plan. The church, the church universal, capital C church, including Providence Church, withstands the turbulence of her times and of the world when church members speak God's truth and God's love to one another. That's how we fight against all those distractions and lies that are begging for our attention. And that's not my idea. It's not Ryan's idea. It's not Providence Church's idea. It's God's idea. It's right there in Ephesians chapter 4. So that's where we've been, right? All believers in Christ are called into one body, God's church, two weeks ago. That was two weeks ago. And this church is to grow in its unity and faith when its members speak the truth in love to one another Therefore, knowing Jesus better and becoming like Jesus more. That was last week. Okay? 
Now we turn our attention to verse 17. Where is Paul going to go from here? We know where we've been. Where are we going? We're going to see Paul pick up essentially the same themes from last week and drive them home further. He's going to apply the same, the same truth and lie principle, not just to what we say, but to how we live. Or to use the language of verse 17, how we walk. Okay, when, when Paul says you must walk or you must no longer walk, what he's talking about is just day-to-day life, step after step in life. Look at verses 17 through 19 with me. He says, now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer, church, walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So we see the main command there in verse 17, right? You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. That's, that's the main instruction that Paul is giving the church in Ephesus, us today. You must no longer work as the Gentiles do. What's a Gentile? Well, by Gentiles, Paul simply means those who are not united to God through Christ. Those who are not part of this one body. Non-Christians, unbelievers. Other New Testament writers refer to that group of people as the world. Um, these are, are people who have rejected Christ, have not believed in him. And, and what characterizes the way that these people walk or live? Well, look at the end of verse 19. They are given to sensuality, which simply means selfishly pleasing their own feelings. They're given over to greed or amassing more and more for themselves. They practice, quote, every kind of impurity, which is simply a ref- meaning that they have no reference to God. They have no reference to what is truly holy and good and righteous and just. They have no reference to his purposes or his ways. And that's what their life looks like on the outside. Now, what, what drives such a life? Just scan back over the text. What, what is motivating those kinds of behaviors? Well, in verse 17, we see futility of mind. In the futility of their minds, they do those things. First part of verse 18, their understanding is darkened. At the end of verse 18, we see the word ignorance, the ignorance that is in them. And so they, they live the way they do because Gentiles, unbelievers, the world, they, they do not embrace the truth of God's reality, right? The problem really isn't their behaviors on the outside. The problem, to use the language of verse 19, is that they have become callous. They feel nothing for God. They're not even aware of of his magnificence, his majesty, his claim upon them because he has created them. And so you, you talk about God and it's like, I don't know, throwing something at a hunk of meat. It just like pings off. There's no penetration. There's no sense of, yes, this is real. That's callousness, unfeeling, just numb to it all. And that's what's driving all of this 
all of this sin, all of the um, greed and um, being alienated from the life of God, sensuality, impurity. It's this inward callousness towards God. This was exactly Jesus' point uh, in Matthew 15, right, that, that Sharon read for us. He said, out of the heart come evil thoughts. Those are what defile a person. And so our problem is, is not outside of us. It's not what we eat or who we hang out with or even some behaviors that we do ultimately. Our, our problem is that as people, we are bad on the inside. We're ruined on the inside. We are callous towards God and, and all of our attitudes and actions are merely an expression of those crooked hearts, those dead hearts, those unfeeling hearts inside of us. And so, brothers and sisters, if, if you or people you know are ever mystified by your own behaviors, you know, why do I do that thing? Why did I lash out like that at the person I love? Why, why am I so selfish? Why can't I love that person better? Why can't I kick this sinful habit? Have you ever wondered things like that? Well, Jesus says the problem is on the inside. It's not mostly in your environment. It's not mostly in your upbringing. It's not mostly in anything outside of you. The problem is chiefly inside of you. Jesus invites us to look first at the inside. Is the problem that in some way we are callous toward God? That might not always be the chief problem, but I find Jesus' words more relevant the longer I live. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. And these are what defile a person. And so that's the main problem in Jesus' eyes. And Paul is saying to Christians in, in verses 17, you should not live like that. You should not live as these callous people who just have all of this wickedness and sin kind of coming out of them. You should not live like that, church. And if you want to know why, look at verse 20. Verse 20, why, why is that unfitting for the church? Why is he saying to Christians, do not walk, you must not walk as the Gentiles do? Verse 20, that is not the way you learned Christ. It's not the way you learned Christ. Now before we go on, because he's going to say more, before we go on, I just want to draw out something really important in, in that verse, in verse 20. Because I, I think the language that Paul is using, you can hear it in the English, it's strange. And I think it's strange on purpose. Uh, so for instance, yesterday um, I was at a graduation party. Uh, Nicholas Colano is graduating from high school. He had a party. And not one time did I ask someone, oh, well, how did you learn Nick? It's a weird way to talk, right? How did you learn Nick? I might say, well, how did you meet him? Or how did you get to know him? But that's not what Paul says here. He's smashing these two words together. That is not how you learned Christ. What does he mean by that? What he means, well, what doesn't he mean? What he's not referring to is just how you came across Jesus. As if he might be someone at a party that you met this one time, and oh, do you know Jesus? Yeah, I know Jesus. I met him so-and-so's house, right? 
The Apostle Paul is writing to people who, who may have been there when Jesus walked planet Earth, right? Like, this is the same generation as Jesus. So some of them may have actually met Jesus and then moved on to these cities in which he was writing these letters, but that's not what he's talking about. Nor is he talking about um, learning about Jesus, like, oh, well, you've been taught some things about him, you know, and now you can recite these truths about Jesus, He's not saying that either. He's saying that is not how you learned Christ. What he's referring to is a deeply intimate, personal knowing of a person. Like, think about that literally. Learning someone. How do you learn someone? Well, you live with them. You experience them regularly, whether their words or their actions, their behaviors, their attitudes... You learn them. So, so this is the concept of really good friends who have been together for decades. Right? They have learned one another. They, they may be able to finish each other's sentences. They know each other so well. Or, or maybe spouses, when one spouse starts to take on the behaviors of the other and, and they have learned that person, right? They know them in and out. That is the kind of thing that takes place when we place our faith in Jesus. We learn Christ. We don't just learn about Him. We don't just have a chance encounter with Him. We are ushered into this deep relationship with Him. And that's what Paul's referring to. And the Apostle John uh, wrote in John, 1 John chapter 4, we love Jesus because He first loved us. And so, so this means when we, when we think about who Jesus is, when we look at the cross... We don't first just think analytically about it. Like, like, oh, okay, well, the cross is where Jesus paid for my sin, and so if I place my faith in Christ, then I get out of hell, and hell is bad. I don't want to go to hell. And, and oh, and I'll get to go to heaven, and that sounds pretty good. I want to go to heaven. And so there's just this analytical mind intellectual thing saying, okay, yeah, I'll trust in Jesus. That's not saving faith. That's not, when, when, when the New Testament talks about believing in Jesus, that's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is that we, we see the cross through eyes of saving faith and we see love, right? We love because he first loved us. Love is personal. You can't have a distant love. Love is in your face. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Personal. I look at the cross and I see the love of God rolling like an ocean toward me. In a greater way than even the best of friends or of spouses. Knowing Jesus in this way means that his, his personality, his character starts to rub off on us. We, we become like him. And this happens at such a deep level that, that Paul says we undergo a, a change in identity. Did you catch that? We are to put off the old self, who we were before knowing Jesus, and we are to put on a new self, who we are now that we know him in this deeply intimate and relational way. 
Look down at verses 21 through 24. I'll start in verse 20 just so we can pick up the context, but look at what 21 through 24 says. Okay, but that's not the way you learned Christ. And then he interjects, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The old self, according to verse 22, is corrupt. The word corrupt just means dying or or decaying or falling apart. That's what corrupt things do. They're just kind of like corrupted metal is rusting. It's just flaking apart. That's corruption. And that was us. That's our old selves. We were living dead-end lives. We were headed nowhere. We were flaking apart. And Paul says that the reason for that corruption was deceitful desires. Our own desires were lying to us about what is good and desirable, which resulted in dead-end living. So, so this sounds familiar, right? This is essentially the same picture of, of those Gentiles up in verse 17 that we must no longer walk as. And, and what Paul is saying is we all once did walk that way. We know what it's like to walk that way, to have callous hearts toward God that produce these deceptive desires and therefore result in these empty, dead-end lives. That was the old self. Yuck, right? Like, ugh, who wants that? It's the old self. The old self to the new self is this huge transformation. We came to learn Christ, to learn Him. And Christ is the greatest embodiment, not of deceit and lies, but of God's truth. Did you see that? He, verse 21, as the truth is in Jesus. You came to learn Jesus, and what you came to see was not deceitful things or half-truths, but truth, real rock under your feet, true things. And now, being renewed in our minds, verse 23 Contrary to the Gentiles who are futile in their minds, we are renewed in our mind so that as we put on the new self, we are cre- that new self is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There, verse 24. Do you see that? True. Truth. This is real. This is what's true. And so, brothers and sisters, we once had these callous hearts towards God, right? That produced all of these deceitful, lied-filled desires about what was true and good and right and led to all of this dead-end living, death, decay. If you ever come across someone who feel, says they feel like they're dead inside, that's, that's what I associate with the old self. The old self is just dead inside. It's going nowhere. But then we come to know truth in learning Christ. And we find a new set of desires happening in us. And they produce true righteousness and holiness. 
as we live out life. So this is a huge transformation. Now to think about this just a little bit more, kids, uh, you're with us today. Thanks for uh, being awesome and being willing to hang out with us adults instead of go to class this morning. I want to talk to you for just a moment because I think you can help us understand what this transformation is like and therefore what Paul's point is up in verse 17. Um, Kids, I'm thinking of an animal and an animal that goes through a big transformation in its life. It's not a big animal. It's actually a small animal, but it goes through a transformation. It's transformed. Can anybody, kids, can you think of, can you guess what animal I'm thinking of? You can just shout it out if you have an idea. Any ideas? One animal that becomes another. Any? Okay, yes, that's exactly what I'm thinking of. Thank you, Jane. Yeah, a caterpillar and a butterfly. Now, this caterpillar, right, you all know what caterpillars are. Maybe you found them in your backyard. It's this little, like, brown, wormy thing that, like, slinks along the ground or along, you know, a little branch with leaves. It, it eats those leaves, and then it makes what? What, what does it climb into? Oh, I think I heard the more technical word. I was going to say cocoon, but what did you say, Asher? Louder? A chrysalis. Awesome. Yeah, I was going to say cocoon, but yeah, you're right. Chrysalis. Great job, man. Your teachers are proud at this moment. Yeah, they, they go into a chrysalis, and then you give them a day or two, and they come out as a butterfly. And a butterfly isn't like a little slinky worm that eats leaves. No, it's this big, beautiful thing that flies, and it eats nectar out of flowers. And nectar is sweet. It's, it's the, the sugary thing, stuff that the flower produces. And so kids, imagine. Imagine if your life was one where you had to crawl around on your belly, and the only thing you could eat was spinach. Does that sound like a good life? <laughs> Jack is like, Ugh. Yeah. I don't think that's a good life either, Jack. I'm, I'm with you. But imagine I get, so, so this is where God does things in really cool ways because you, we look at butterflies and, um, and we think, oh man, this is beautiful. I'm going to apply it to kids and it's going to just sound weird. Imagine you had a magic sleeping bag, right? And you could crawl in this magic sleeping bag and tomorrow morning you would come out and you could fly and you could eat nothing but sugar and it would be healthy. I mean, wouldn't that be great? Okay, so kids, how many of you, if you went into your magic sleeping bag and came out and the next day were zooming around your neighborhood and and your parents gave you a big bowl of sugary candy and said, eat, it's healthy, it's what your body needs. How many of you would decide, I I think I just want some spinach. Like, I think I'm going to climb around on my belly some more. Would anybody do that? Are we thinking about it? Who's thinking about this? No, nobody would do that. I wouldn't do that. But Paul is saying, well, that's kind of what being a Christian is like. You've you've gone through this huge transformation. You have a new nature based on truth instead of lies. and, And therefore, using the language of 17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do because that's not who you are anymore. And so a Christian who has come to know Jesus through faith 
and who is put on that new self to be content with sin is just a living contradiction. They're associating with a nature that they no longer have. They're like a butterfly who refuses to fly and just slinks along on the ground and eats leaves instead of the sweet nectar. Do you see that? Isn't that helpful? It's no longer who we are. This huge thing has happened inside of you. That's why you're not to sin. It's not because God points a finger down at us and says, stop doing all that bad stuff. No, that's not Christianity. That's not saving faith. Saving faith is this huge transformation on the inside of us that makes that old way of life almost impossible. And I say almost impossible because we all know that Christians still struggle with sin. That, that old nature isn't completely out of us yet. There will be a day coming when that old nature is just completely gone. For now, it's still here. But because of the new nature, we can't just be okay with sin. We, we grieve over it. We repent over it. We feel anguish over it. We feel our, our guilt and our need for forgiveness for it. It drives us to Christ. We no longer live out deceptions and lies. The deceptions and lies that say, it's not a big deal to steal. It's not a big deal to lie. It's not a big deal to live for yourself and not for God. It's not us anymore. We live out truth that is in Jesus. And because God has called us together into his one body, the church, we live out that truth in Jesus together in the church. Where Paul goes next in verse 25 and following is he fleshes out what that looks like. This is really boots on the ground kind of stuff. Like, I, know, I know we can be, from up front, we can be kind of high level and abstract sometimes. If abstract doesn't help you, we're about to get very, very practical. Paul names various attitudes and actions that we should either do or not do as, as these truth livers in Jesus, those who, have, who now embody the truth because we know Jesus. And I know for me, the first time I read this list, it, it felt a little random. I don't think he's being random at all. I think he's being very purposeful. And I think we're helped if we look at this paragraph in 25 to 32, and we look at the first verse and the end verse, the last verse, as kind of a frame for what comes in the middle. You, you might remember in school, you talk about an introduction and a conclusion, and then you put kind of the meat in the middle. I think that's kind of what Paul's doing here. He's constructing a frame on the outside and then putting some details in the middle. So let's look at the frame first. Uh, we'll look at 25, then we'll look at 32, and then we'll look at the stuff in the middle, okay? Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you Speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So, so in other words, now because we have a new nature that's based on truth that is in Jesus, you, Christian, cannot deal falsely with one another. You just, you, you cannot. Just as something bright cannot also be dark, just as butterflies don't slink along on the ground, so people of truth cannot deal falsely with one another. It's, it's not right. It's a contradiction in terms. Do you see that? See that in the text? Now jump down to verse 32. Here's kind of the second part of the frame coming at the end. 
Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Now pay attention to these words. As God in Christ forgave you. As God in Christ forgave you. That's really important because Paul had just finished saying that that new self is created after what? It's created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It was verse 24, right? And now he's saying to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So, so he's saying it's, it's only natural for people who are in the likeness of God, in truth, to act like God to one another. Do you see that? The new nature is created after God, so be like God. Be like God. And so this paragraph, this whole paragraph, beginning, end, and in the middle, is meant to show us how this new, truth-based, God-like self, when you, when you put a bunch of those new selves together in the church, how they are to treat one another. It's describing what we should expect to see when a bunch of those people are put together into one body. Okay, so what should we see? What should we see when we gather? Three things. Look at verse 26 and 27. Here's the first one. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Now, when verse 26 begins with the words, be angry, I take that to mean that there are times when it is right to experience anger, even in the church. When we see someone sinned against, when we see someone taken advantage of or oppressed, a ho-hum attitude is not godliness, right? God gets angry about those things. But God does not sin in his anger. God never lets his anger consume him. He never rages out of control. His anger is always well-measured, well-reasoned. And just so, God's church should not be characterized by rage or by the sinful venting of anger. And then we're told in the, in the second half, don't let the sun go down on your anger, meaning we, in our relationships to one another, we should not harbor anger against one another. Harboring anger gives Satan an opportunity to divide us, and it contradicts the gospel. And so if, if God could set aside all of his anger over our sins, if he could settle accounts with us as sinners, how can we harbor anger against a brother or sister? How can we not be quick to settle accounts with one another? And so keeping our anger in check, being well-measured, Being quick to settle accounts with one another is one way we reflect this God-like truthiness in the church. It's one way we embrace the new self and we put away falsehood. Here's the second, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So if the first was, well, be angry, but don't sin in anger, 
Here the second is live generously. I mean, perhaps we read verse 28 and we think, well, I haven't stolen anything recently, so I can just kind of check this one off. But, but look at what's coming underneath the surface. The second half of the verse is really important. Do honest work with your hands so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. And so, you know, whether you've stolen something or not really isn't the issue. The, the mantra of thievery is, I don't have enough, so I will take. But the mantra of generosity says, I have so much, I must share. And do you remember what Paul said was true of Christians as he opened up this letter all the way back in chapter 1? We looked at this two weeks ago. His very first words after giving a greeting are these. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with a little bit? With some small blessing. No, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. If you are a Christian, you have every spiritual blessing that God can think of. Okay? That he can dish out. You have them all. You're not missing one. That's what's true. That's what's true of you, Christian. How was that accomplished? How did you come to receive every spiritual blessing? Well, it was through Christ's labor on the cross. He worked hard. He suffered much, not for his own benefit, right? But for us, for me and for you, so that you could receive every spiritual blessing. And so now we, like him, should apply ourselves. We should work hard, not to amass more things for ourselves, but for the benefits of others, So when a need comes up in the body, you can say, oh, I can give toward that. You need help with X? I'm just, I'm ready to be generous because I work hard to be generous. Like God is generous. God provides honest work for us so that his body can be this culture of generosity one to another. We can be like him in his generosity. So, so be angry, do not sin, now live generously. Third, speak words of grace. Look at verse 29 through 31. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So we already said that 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 word corrupt or corruption means something that is dying or decaying or falling apart. So, So what is corrupting talk? Well, corrupting talk would be talk that in some way kills or breaks down someone or something. Some people say that our words can either tear down or build up, right? Uh, If you're a parent, maybe you've even told that to your kids. When, When you talk to your sibling, you can either tear them down or build them up. We can see in verse 31 some examples of talk that tears down. Bitter talk, wrathful or angry talk, clamoring talk. Clamoring is just people who speak selfishly, just wanting to be heard, wanting to air their opinions. Slandering or defaming talk. It's not a definitive list. We could add to that talk that blames or belittles 
or tribalistic talk that forms these cliques and an in-crowd, self-centered talk instead of taking an interest in someone else. When What Paul's saying is when, when someone comes into a gathering of the church, a, a gathering of people who are defined by the truth of who God is, they just shouldn't hear any of, any of that kind of talk. That shouldn't be happening among us. Instead, Paul describes what kind of speech a person should hear when they come into a gathering of Christ's church. They should hear speech that is good for building up. Speech that fits the occasion. Speech that gives grace to those who hear. Well, brothers and sisters, what is the occasion for which we gather? We gather as those whom God has called together to worship Jesus. We, we worship Him for all the good that He has shown us and for all the grace that He has given to us. And, and so Paul is saying it's those things that should characterize your communication one to another. That's what you should be talking about. We should not destroy, he says, what the Spirit is joining together in the body of Christ that grieves the Spirit. Can you imagine if, if you were trying to build something together and yet someone else was just tearing it down? Wouldn't that give you grief? And so because it's the Spirit that puts us together, we grieve the Spirit if we tear one another down. And rather, he says, we should work with the Spirit and use our words to build one another up toward greater faith and love in Christ. That could be as simple as asking one another, how have you um, been spurred on in the Word this week? Or how can I pray for you today? Or I'm struggling with this sin. Would you help me? Would you help me understand what God says about this? Help me repent over it. All of those things are ways we can build one another up. This doesn't have to be complicated, right? It's just living in the truth of learning Christ, of knowing Him. And so there are just three really practical examples of what living in the body of Christ should look like. Be angry and do not sin. Live generously. Speak words of grace to one another. And, and again, this is just, this is kind of Paul riffing off some, a brainstorm list. That's not a definitive list. Notice that, that Paul's example of those things includes every part of our being. Our hearts. Right? Be angry and do not sin. That's an internal thing that's happening on the inside. Our hands live generously. Do honest work with your hands. And our mouths, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. And so in other words, God's design for his church, the the, the main event that happens when the church gathers is for every member to be all in Heart, hands, and mouths in building up one another, building up the body of Christ. Every part of every person, all of you, there is no person left out of that plan of God is to move toward this aim. Is that how we come together? Do do we come together thinking, I have an indispensable role to play in what's about to happen? The words I pray can be used to build others up. The the zeal in which I sing can build others up. The conversations I have after our gathering together can build one another up. 
Is that the mindset we have, or do we think the main event just happens up here? And we're just here to watch, and we're just here to listen. That's not God's design for his church. You are the main event. When, when God, when we get to the end of the age, and God puts on display everything that he's doing through Christ, he is not going to call preachers up and say, look at all these great sermons. He's going to call a people up, and he's going to say, Look at how transformed they are. Do you see how this people were once callous and just dead to me? And now look, they live in truth. They, they are defined by true righteousness and holiness because they know me. That's you, brothers and sisters. You are the main event of the church when the body gathers. If you are here this morning, this is, this is the last I say, and then we'll, we'll pray and, and move on in worship. If you're here this morning and you don't really know how to do that, you think, well, I don't know what to say or what to do to build others up. You know, I'm looking around this room and should, what should I do? Should I just go up to someone and quote scripture to them and, and leave? Well, if you're not sure how to do that or, or you feel ineffective doing that, you can talk to me, you can talk to one of the other elders, Ryan or Don, Rob when he gets back. Because remember what we read last week, your, your pastors are given you to you to equip you for that type of ministry. So if you feel ill-equipped, let's talk about it. That's what discipleship is, Right? Be equipped. Don't, don't be content being unequipped for the main event when Christ's church gathers. We are all called to play this pivotal role of building up the body of Christ that we are members of. Let's pray toward that end and go to the Lord in prayer. And so this time of prayer is really set aside for uh, responding to what we've just read in the Word. And so if there are any ways in which you are convicted and, and want to express repentance, that's so fitting. That builds the body up. That's not just a you and Lord moment. Others benefit from hearing um, our repentance. Uh, the, we can ask for God to move in ways that are on your heart. And so I'll just open it up. And then, um, again, you are the main event. So pray boldly and um, don't hesitate. <laughs> Let's go to him in prayer now. He loves to hear his people pray. Lord, we thank you so much for what we find here in Ephesians chapter 4. We thank you that you are doing this a great work in your church. Even us here at Providence Church, you are at work in toward this end to build us up in truth, to make us people of true righteousness and holiness by knowing Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for that. It's all by your grace. We are not impressive people. We are not put together people, but we know Jesus. And so we thank you for him. Would you hear now as your people pray to you, would you hear and be delighted to answer our requests? I ask in Jesus' name.